You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Human Circus. We'll start this episode with a passage from the writer of the 19th century hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. And no, that's not a joke. It just so happens that the hymnist in question, Sabine Baring Gould, had other arrows in his quiver than just that. He was, in addition, a novelist and a collector of folk songs, who also wrote about today's topic in his book, Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. What he wrote on the matter could be said to speak to us as much of the 19th century as it does the 12th, as much of the modern world with all its prejudices as the medieval one. That tends to be how it works. What he wrote begins like this. Quote, About the middle of the 12th century, a rumor circulated through Europe that there reigned in Asia a powerful Christian emperor, Presbyter Johannes. In a bloody fight, he had broken the power of the Muslims and was ready to come to the assistance of the Crusaders. Great was the exultation in Europe, for of late the news from the East had been gloomy and depressing. The power of the infidel had increased. Overwhelming masses of men had been brought into the field against the chivalry of Christendom, and it was felt that the cross must yield. The news of the success of the priest-king opened a door of hope to the desponding Christian world. Pope Alexander III determined at once to effect a union with this mysterious personage, and on the 27th of September, 1177, wrote him a letter, which he entrusted to his physician, Philip, to deliver in person. Philip started on his embassy, but never returned. Leaving aside for now questions about this embassy, Philip would not be alone in his failure to locate and reach the priest-king. In between references to the, quote, odious crescent, and the Mongols as, quote, Gog and Magog come to slaughter in the times of the Antichrist. Baring Gould traced a dramatic story of friars sent forth into the steppe, of the resultant reports that no, there was no mighty Christian empire out there, of how some set their eyes on Africa as a possible home for the legendary ruler, of how others still maintained that, quote, the Prester John of popular belief reigned in splendor somewhere in the dim Orient. In this series, we'll be exploring some of those not-so-dim regions, and this cultural giant who was projected to pop up here and there across them, 
at different times, and in slightly different guises. Not exactly real, save for the real impact that he had upon the world. We'll follow this recurring character as he skips across centuries of chronicles and travel narratives. Sometimes one man, sometimes a dynasty, a figure or figures of mystery, always at the edge of one's vision, or else found, but not quite living up to the reports. This will be his story, and that of those who told stories of him. Hello, and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that follows medieval history through the stories of its travelers, through its merchants, monks, and ambassadors, both real and imagined. And it is Patreon-supported, supported by podcast listeners like yourself, maybe even actually yourself, you who are listening right now. In which case, thank you. Patreon membership starts at a dollar a month. But if it's not an option for you, and I fully appreciate that sometimes it simply isn't, so if that isn't an option for you, but you are enjoying the podcast, then please do consider leaving a review wherever it is you listen. Positive reviews help the podcast reach new listeners, and also help counteract the ones from people who, for example, don't like my voice, or are otherwise against the whole thing. That said, let's get into the story. It's the mid-12th century. The Knights Templar have been founded not so long ago. There is a Norman king in Sicily, and a Plantagenet in England. Frederick Barbarossa is Holy Roman Emperor. Abelard has died. Then his antagonist, Bernard of Clairvaux. And then Eloise. Construction begins on the Notre Dame. The Second Crusade comes and goes. The Crusade is not a raging success. Not for Conrad III or Louis II both of whom suffer significant defeats in Anatolia at the hands of the Seljuks, and then later fall short at the siege of Damascus. Better for someone like Nur ad-Din, who we met in the Salah ad-Din series, and who here featured on the other side of those encounters. It's around this time that a document is written, and it circulates. A document with a story to tell. A story that would be every bit as impactful as it was untrue. Some time ago on the podcast, I covered John Mandeville, the widely traveled and widely read English knight, whose text and general character turned out to be widely borrowed from other sources. And that was quite some time ago, pre-pandemic, if I remember correctly. I finished that last Mandeville episode by saying that I was leaving out the material on Prester John, specifically because I would be back soon with a full series on Prester John, and that I would be back with the start of that series in the next month or so. Things don't always go as planned. As you now know, I was not back with the start of that series in the next month or so. Not in the month or so after that, either. Not even in the month or so after that. But I am now. 
This is the story of a mysterious priest-king, a Christian ruler of unimaginable power, a man of great wealth, both in worldly riches and wondrous miracles, a mighty lord whose armies marched forth from somewhere in India, or the steppe, or perhaps East Africa. A would-be savior to whom Latin Christian Europeans were said to look and hope. A figure in fiction all the way from Umberto Eco's Baudolino to the Marvel Comics universe, where he wielded an artifact from the land of Avalon known as the Evil Eye and was preserved for centuries in the Chair of Survival. Which I think is totally appropriate, given how long he lingered in the imagination as an impactful person. This is the story of Prester John. Where to start? Maybe we should start with the text from the first half of the 12th century, uncovered in the last half of the 19th. A text telling of the coming to Rome of a patriarch from India, of his arrival during the fourth year of the papacy of Calixtus II, during 1122. This patriarch had apparently been elected by the Christians of India and had immediately journeyed to Constantinople for confirmation of his rank. He had there encountered papal legates and with the help of Greek interpreters arranged to be brought on to Rome to see it with his own eyes and be able to report back. His presence in that city was written of as in itself being a miracle. For nobody, quote, from such distant lands and barbarous regions had ever been seen throughout almost all of Italy, besides this aforesaid Patriarch John of Blessed Life. His name, by the way, was indeed John. This John was said to have leapt for joy and praised God on sighting Rome. And after he had spent some time in the city and learnt something of it, he spoke one day before the Pope and a large congregation of the lands he had come from. He spoke of the city of Holna, head and mistress of the Indian kingdom. It was a full four days' journey across, surrounded by walls wide enough for two chariots to ride atop them side by side and enriched by the jewels from one of the rivers of paradise that flowed through it. The entire city was populated by Christians, and as related in the Acts of Thomas, no one of other beliefs could live there without soon converting, or else collapsing dead. Nearby, there was a lake, and on its shores were twelve monasteries, each dedicated to one of the twelve apostles. In the center of that lake was a mountain, and at its summit, the church of Thomas himself. That church was inaccessible, save at the time of the yearly feast, when the waters receded, and people gathered to celebrate and be healed, and the patriarch entered the church to practice the sacred mysteries. Inside, set within an ornate canopy crafted of precious metals and stones, was a greater treasure still. The body of Thomas, upright, whole and unharmed, as though on the day of its burial. Before it hung a balsam-fueled lamp, never diminished, 
never extinguished. And during that festival of the Holy Apostle, people would shout and clamor for some of that balsam, known and desired for its miraculous healing properties. The body of Thomas was taken from its perch then and placed upon a throne. He made a handsome figure, red in hair and beard, face glowing like a star. And when the patriarch approached him with holy offerings in a golden pan, Thomas took them in his outstretched right hand, so that he was believed to be not dead, but altogether alive. And the saintly body administered the Eucharist. When the faithless or corrupt approached, Thomas would withdraw and close his hand, refusing to give his blessing. Thus rejected, the disbeliever would immediately be brought to convert, or else would die upon leaving that place. And at this fearful miracle, all those watching who were not Christian already would be moved to convert in a great wave. At the end of the week of celebration, the patriarch and his ministers returned Thomas to his place of rest, and the people left his church, the lake, which had dried up to permit their passage, filling again behind them with deep waters. Quote, when the patriarch of the Indians had finished reporting such things in the Lateran court, Pope Calixtus II, who was there with the rest of the Roman assembly, calmly glorified Christ with their hands raised to heaven, because so excellent and so great a miracle did not cease to be performed through His Holiness the Apostle Thomas every year. Maybe, instead, we should start with German chronicler Otto of Freising and his chronicle, or history, of the two cities, recorded between 1143 and 46. That's often referenced as the first appearance of Prester John. So what did that entail? According to Otto, he had heard the story when at the court of Pope Eugenius III, and had heard it from Bishop Hugh of Jabala. The bishop had been there to urge the Pope that Edessa had to be retaken. But Hugh had also told of a man named Johannes, or John, a man both king and priest, whose lands could be found further east than Persia or Armenia, who, like the rest of his people, was an Nestorian Christian. This John had not remained out there beyond Persia and Armenia, but had in recent years come against what is described as a combined army of Persians, Medes, and Assyrians, and, after three days of slaughter, a deadlock in which neither side would submit, had won victory and swept forward toward Jerusalem. He would not reach it. Quote, the bishop said that the aforesaid John moved his army to aid the church of Jerusalem, but that when he came to the Tigris and was unable to take his army across it by any means, he turned aside to the north, where he had been informed that the stream was frozen solid during the winter. There he awaited the ice for several years, but saw none because of the temperate weather. His army lost many men on account of the weather to which they were unaccustomed, 
and he was compelled to return home. He is said to be a descendant of the Magi of old, who are mentioned in the Gospel. He governs the same people as they did, and is said to enjoy such glory and such plenty that he uses no scepter save one of emerald. Fired by the example of his forefathers, who came to adore Christ in the manger, he proposed to go to Jerusalem, but he was, they say, turned back for the aforementioned reason. John, the promised priest-king of somewhere out east, had brought his army to the verge of intervention in the crusader states, had been on the cusp of bringing that army to Jerusalem itself, and then had faded away. And who was he? Historians usually identify the story of this John with that of Yelu Dashi, the man who had escaped the collapsing Liao dynasty and led his people west, establishing the Karakatai, and, crucially to our concerns, achieving a stunning military victory against Seljuk Sultan Ahmad Suljar at the 1141 Battle of Katwan. The timing was right. But in other ways, there seems little of the Prester John legend in this leader from northern China who founded an imposing Central Asian power. He was, I should clarify, not Christian. I have variously seen him described as Buddhist or Buddhist Tengrist, though that was not at all understood by Otto, his source, or his readers. Yeludashi was, critically, not a Muslim, and thus, it seemed, believably an Nestorian Christian. He had arrived from distant, only vaguely understood lands to the east, and defeated a strong Muslim leader of considerably greater proximity. You could see how that might be interesting, how stories might grow, how they might have joined those that had already grown. For what it's worth, neither Otto nor the Pope seems to have fervently invested their hopes in this particular supposedly Nestorian savior. Otto passes over the material in a manner that historian Keegan Brewer describes as being, quote, almost as though it were unworthy of being recorded. And as for Eugenius, he would act on the primary topic of Bishop Hugh's embassy the urgent need to retake Edessa. But he appears not to have attempted contact with the priest-king Johannes. Maybe, instead of either Otto of Freising, the chronicler of reports of a far-off battle and failed attempt to intervene in Jerusalem, or Patriarch John, witness to a land of Christian miracles in India, maybe we should start with the letter. Maybe we should start with the letter of Prester John that circulated in the late 12th century, sent, according to one source, in 1165. That source was writing after 1232, so it's not clear that he would know exactly, but that, or thereabouts, remains the widely repeated date. We'll start with that letter after this quick break.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The letter of Prester John, in translation, begins like this. Quote, Prester John, by the power and virtue of God, and our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, to Emmanuel, governor of the Romans, wishing him health and the extended enjoyment of divine favor. Emmanuel, the Roman governor in question, was Manuel Comnenus, ruler of the Byzantine Empire from 1143 until 1180. As for Prester John, maybe we should start with the basics. First of all, Prester, or Presbyter John, to be totally clear, wasn't real. He did not really exist, except in the sense that he did, that he did have a real impact in shaping the world as some people saw it. He was, or so the stories went, a Christian patriarch whose armies promised to spill forth from behind the borders of his near-magical realm and to occupy the Holy Land, an external savior whose arrival some European Christians would look to with hope, a redemptive and irresistible force sweeping in from the East, or, if not him, then perhaps his son or his grandson. Over time, the promise of the bloodline, or office, would replace that of the man himself. It could not help but do so, as first decades and then centuries passed. His realm was said to be miraculous, but he himself was not expected to have so much of a miraculous lifespan as that. The Prester John of the letter addressed himself to a Byzantine emperor who the, quote, little Greeks regarded as God, though he was known by the writer to be only mortal and subject to human infirmities. But the writer promised that should Manuel wish to visit him in his realm, he would be set by his host in a place of the highest possible dignity, and when he returned to his own lands, would do so with great riches. Then he started to tell him of the greatness of that realm, in riches and otherwise. As to that, the letter writer was not shy. Indeed, he embarked on what one writer has called an orgy of unrestrained grandiloquence. If you truly wish to know the magnitude and excellence of our highness, and over what lands our power dominates, then know and believe without hesitation that I, Prester John, am Lord of Lords, and surpass in all riches which are under heaven, in virtue when in power, all the kings of the wide world. Seventy-two kings are tributaries to us. He would have more to say shortly on the topic of his immense wonderfulness, and that of his lands. After establishing the excellence of his power and the number of the kings beneath him, only few of them Christian, 
The writer got to the really promising bit, at least where some in his audience were concerned. He wrote that he was a devout Christian, and one who everywhere defended Christians. He said that he had vowed to visit the sepulcher of the Lord, with, quote, the greatest army, just as it is befitting the glory of our majesty, in order to humble and defeat the enemies of the cross of Christ, and to exalt his blessed name. So, there was that. And just in case his reader should doubt that Prester John was capable of such things, the writer got a little more expansive. He wrote of magnificence that dominated lands from the furthest reaches of India, where the body of the Apostle Thomas rested, to the slopes of the Babylonian desert. Of the creatures and peoples that lived there, of elephants, dromedaries, camels, hippopotami, crocodiles, white and red lions, wild donkeys, silent cicadas, and a variety of hybrid creatures, some of them possibly of the author's own invention. Then there were the white bears, white merlins, centaurs, cyclopses, griffins, wild men, horned men, fawns, satyrs, pygmies, dog-headed men, giants, and phoenixes. There were salamanders, creatures which lived in fire and produced silk. There were fish, whose blood produced a purple dye. There was a place abundant with honey and abounding with milk, a place without scorpion, snake, or noisy, and, it would seem from the context, venomous frog. There is a river flowing from paradise that wound its way through, and in which were found natural gems of all kinds. There was a plant which grew there whose roots drove off unclean spirits. There was a woody land where pepper was grown, but it was overrun with serpents. When it was time to harvest it, the woods were burned, driving the snakes into their holes while the pepper was gathered. There was a spring that varied in taste by hour of the day, and if you drank it after fasting for three days, then you would never again age, no matter how long you lived. There were small gems sought by eagles to restore their sight, that if worn by humans on their rings, sharpened their vision. Properly prepared, they could also make them invisible, charm those around them, and banish envy. Near the home of the twelve tribes of Jews, there was a river of stones that ran for three days a week and flowed into a waterless sea. The sea's shifting sands, uncrossable by any ship, and whatever lands lying beyond it, completely mysterious. There was a place where the land might open up beneath your feet, and if you were quick, you could snatch up a handful of precious gems before it closed. There were deeper caverns, beneath the ground and beneath the water, where more gems could be found. And in that area, children were raised in the water, so they would later be able to spend months beneath the surface, collecting them. The writer clearly wanted you to know that there were riches, that neither visitor nor inhabitant need want for anything. With all that wealth, there was no room for theft or greed. Such behavior had no place among all that abundance, 
not theft, and not falsehood. There were no liars among these people. Those who did tell a lie died immediately. Figuratively speaking, the author was quick to clarify, for such a person was dead to their society and would never again be spoken of by them. This was a place without vice, without adultery, without flaw. Its ruler slept on a bed of emerald on account of the stone's virtue and chastity, though not the kind of chastity that prevented beautiful women from arriving four times a year, purely, quote, for the purpose of procreating children, before returning to their homes. Within this medieval utopia, the priest-king himself ruled from a rich palace, built in the likeness of that which Thomas the Apostle had once designed for a certain Indian king. The palace is all in acacia wood and ebony, lit by balsam torches and sparkling by day, with the light reflected off two large golden apples, and by night from two large red gemstones. Those within dine off tables of gold, emerald or amethyst, kept safe from poison by the serpent's horn inlaid into the gates, and, one might assume, by the spotlessly crime-free nature of the wider society. The author doesn't exactly paint a picture of a realm in which there are a lot of deceitful, murderous poisoners running about. But there is conflict. It's not clear exactly who with, but there is talk of a place near the palace where the fighters struggled. It almost sounds like they did so in a kind of eternal combat there before the gates, striving without respite or end. Near that place, and near the palace, is a peculiar feature, only reached by 125 steps, first of porphyry, serpentine, and alabaster, then crystal, stone, and sardonyx, and for the final third, amber, jasper, and sapphire. Climbing alongside, or perhaps within, these stairs are a series of columns. At the base, one, and on it, two, and on them, four, and so on, in a vast inverted pyramid of columns that widens out to sixty-four before narrowing back down. At the peak of this precarious architectural diamond is a mirror, not a regular mirror, of course. I'm reminded here of the story of the mirror that was supposed to sit atop the lighthouse of Alexandria, the one that could be turned against enemy fleets, burning them at sea before they could threaten the harbor, the one that was supposedly sabotaged, smashed by a treacherous priest, if I remember the story correctly. This one didn't exactly have that power, what it did have was something else rather special. In this mirror, Prester John and his people could see all plots and machinations, in fact all things that were put in motion for or against him in the other regions of the land. Guarding this powerful mirror against the fate of its Alexandrian cousin, this one was protected day and night by 12,000 men. And there was more. This, Prester John, was not yet done, was not yet certain that you were appropriately impressed by his tremendous tremendousness, was going to show you by way of those who served him. 
His steward is a primate and king. His cupbearer, an archbishop and king. His marshal, an archpriest and king. And his chief cook, an abbot and king. There is talk of how kings took turns serving him. Seven in a month, along with sixty-two dukes, and a pleasing three hundred and sixty-five counts. How twelve archbishops ate at his right, and twenty bishops at his left, along with the patriarch of St. Thomas, the archpriest of Samarkand, and the archbishop of Susa, connecting this mythical Christian kingdom to concrete real-world locations. And if the priest-king writer still hadn't convinced you, then he was happy to tell you of a second palace. This one was not wider, but was taller and more beautiful than the first, having appeared to Prester John's father in a vision, in a dream. He had heard the words that he should construct a palace for his son. His son, who, he was told, would be king of the worldly kings and lord of the lords of the entire earth. He was told that his palace would have such grace conferred upon it by God, that no one within would ever grow sick or hungry or die on the day that they entered. The father had risen from his sleep terrified, but then had been reassured by a voice speaking to him in his waking hours, telling him not to hesitate, to do as he had been told, and to trust that all would be as it had been promised. And apparently, it was, complete with crystal flooring, jewels and melted gold for concrete, and a ceiling of sapphire set with topaz that was compared to stars illuminating the heavens. Completing the apparently open-plan layout were golden columns that narrowed to needlepoints at the top, so as to obscure the glimmer of gems on the ceiling as little as possible. Palaces aside, Prester John's realms contained many strong fortifications, and many of the strongest men and women, with Amazons in particular being mentioned. They contained the strongest armies, armies that by some accounts numbered among them the people of Gog and Magog, who did not fear death, and ate the dead of their enemies. Armies that stormed forth, with the priest-king himself, sometimes accompanying them. Thirteen great crosses of gold, borne on chariots before him. Ten thousand mounted soldiers, and one hundred thousand on foot behind each. Among all this military might, the priest-king was unarmed and unornamented. There was a simple wooden cross, and there was a golden vase filled with earth to remind him that that was where his body would return to. But also, there was a silver one, this one filled with coins to remind others that he was Lord of Lords. We cannot at present tell you enough about our glory and power, the letter concluded. But when you come to us, you will say that we are truly the Lord of Lords of the whole earth. In the meantime, you should know this trifling fact, that our country extends in breadth for four months in one direction, indeed in the other direction, 
No one knows how far our kingdom extends. If you can count the stars in heaven, and the sand in the sea, then you can calculate the extent of our kingdom and our power. The letter of Prester John announced to its readers the presence of a Christian king, one whose power was beyond the reckoning of even the mightiest of emperors, yet one who preferred to be known by the humble title of Prester, Presbyter, Priest. It promised those readers that this powerful lord intended to protect his fellow Christians, and with an army of overwhelming numbers and strength to do so, along with those flesh-eaters they brought with them. It seemed he was very much able to follow through on that promise, to sweep aside any and all opposition, and to conquer the Holy Land. You could see how this might appeal to a certain audience, how it might have made them want to believe. And there were little additions made to some copies of the letter to help this belief along the way. The text presents itself as a letter to the Byzantine emperor, but how had it reached a Latin readership? One version of the text concludes with a note of explanation that, quote, Here ends the book or history of Prester John, which was translated from Greek into Latin by Christian, Archbishop of Mainz. And in some cases, there was the additional detail that Christian was, quote, at that time in Greece, having been sent there by the Roman Emperor, and he carried the letter with him into the kingdom of the Teutons. Some observers have since suggested that this Christian of Mainz was perhaps the actual author of the whole thing. But either way, these little touches added believability to the communications of the far-off Prester John. And where was he? Where was this far-off, amazing empire? As I mentioned, there was some connection made to identifiable place names in present-day Iran and Uzbekistan, and there was also mention that his, quote, magnificence dominated the three Indias. So, what were those three Indias? North and South India seem clear enough, but what of the third? That could mean a number of different things, like Syria and Edessa, linked to the Prester John story and to India by its connection to St. Thomas, like southern China, referred to at times as Upper India, even into the 16th century, or like East Africa. As with the elusive lands of Prester John, the three Indias could be hard to pin down on the map. So there we have it, a religious leader from India, a man named John bringing stories of a Christian city and miraculous doings in a mountaintop church, a story of a great victory won by another man who was said to have come just short of bringing his army to Jerusalem, and a letter. All in all, the letter of Prester John was quite the calling card. It was full of imagery of seemingly unbelievable creatures, unbelievable wealth, unbelievable power. So, did people believe it? How was it received? How were its contents then used to interpret the widening world that medieval Europeans were becoming aware of? 
if not based in reality, then what were its sources? If not written or dictated by a nigh-on all-powerful Christian king of the East, and indeed it was not, then who wrote it and why? These are some of the questions we'll get into, not necessarily definitively answer, but get into as we get into this series. We'll touch on the different depictions of Prester John and his realm, and how they evolved over time. How a 12th century forgery had life far longer than its writer could possibly have imagined. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you are listening on the Patreon feed, then expect the bonus section up there shortly. Whether you are or not, expect me back soon with part two in this series on Prester John. I'll talk to you then. Circus will return.